This is Jeff Scott, here to tell you about a prescription you can't afford to miss. The Blues Disease with me, Jeff Scott, every Monday from 10 a.m. to 1 p.m. Pacific on the coolest radio station on the planet, KUCI. It's Contagious Radio, so tune in at your own risk. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. To find out more about this talk show or other talk shows broadcasting on KUCI, log on to our website at KUCI.org or check out the latest program guide. Good evening. You're listening to KUCI at 88.9 FM in Irvine and online at KUCI.org. Welcome to Privacy Piracy. I'm Lloyd. I'm the show's engineer, and your host is Mari Frank. Mari's a local attorney and certified information privacy professional. She's the author of several books, including Safeguard Your Identity and From Victim to Victor, a step-by-step guide for ending the nightmare of identity theft. She also sits on the advisory board of the State of California Office of Privacy Protection, and she's a sheriff reserve here in Orange County. She's testified many times in Congress and the California Legislature on privacy and identity theft issues. And you may have seen her on TV on Dateline, 48 Hours, CNN, NBC, ABC, Geraldo, Montel, O'Reilly, and lots of other shows. So to learn more about this radio show and our great guests, please visit KUCI.org slash privacy piracy. Miller, Schwartz, and Cohn in March of 2007, and he's a partner in the litigation department. Tim advises clients on record retention and information management issues, including the great challenges posed by the recent developments in e-discovery. Prior to joining this firm, Tim Devine served as Managing Counsel and Ford Motor Company's Office of General Counsel. Tim's practice at Ford included significant litigation and client counseling responsibilities. And Tim launched Ford's Privacy Office and counseled them in its e-commerce business portfolio, including numerous websites and new ventures, all sorts of things to do with privacy as well. He has a fabulous background, and he lives in Michigan, and he's a longtime participant in programs to provide legal pro bono services for indigent clients, and you can learn more about him not only at our website at KUCI.org slash privacy piracy, but also at his firm's website at Honigman.com. So thank you so much for joining us all the way from the Midwest, Tim. I'm delighted to be here. Thanks, Mari. Oh, it was so fun to meet you. And when I heard you speak at the Poneman Institute, I said, this is a wonderful, wonderful, articulate guy who we can learn from. Well, you're very kind to say so. I, I, I have to say the same thing about talking with you. It's just a very stimulating conversation and when we talk. Terrific. So let's get started and find out how it is that you actually got in, an interest in privacy as a professional. I'm a fifth-generation lawyer from the state of Michigan. So uh, I I suppose there wasn't much choice uh, in terms of my own career. And when I first started the practice, I was a litigator. That's that's the vision of lawyering in my family. So I was a stand-up courtroom lawyer for several years, and it never, it, it doesn't come into your head as privacy. Of course, we lawyers handle information and very sensitive personal information all the time. But it didn't come into my head as privacy until about 1999, when uh, practicing in-house at Ford Motor Company, I got a call from our general counsel who said, 
we'd like to switch gears on you and have you come over and counsel our e-commerce ventures. And I oh. said, that's fine. Uh, what's e-commerce? Uh, <laughs> right. <laughs> from, for an old-time litigator in a very traditional industry, in a very traditional part of that industry, the legal practice, um, I had to uh, uh, go up quite a steep learning curve. But gosh, I enjoyed that time. We were diversifying and launching new uh, e-businesses and, and trying to bring the, the customer closer to the business. and the, um, So terribly exciting. And I started to learn about how much customer information, even a big traditional manufacturer like Ford Motor Company has, how valuable it is to the marketing people, to the customer service people, to the designers of the vehicles. Right. And uh, not to mention the Ford Credit Company, which, of course, um, provides financing for the vehicles. So it was, a re- it was very interesting to me from a business standpoint as well as the legal standpoint. And so you were one of the pioneers, really. Well, uh, it felt like it to me, although <laughs> I, I can't tell whether that was my own learning curve or whether a whole bunch of us were going up the peak at the same time. Uh, but that was the time when uh, it was pre-Gramm-Leach-Bliley, it was right. pre-HIPAA, and uh, there were a lot of folks concerned about information, uh, and a couple of the significant breaches had taken place, but, but uh, people were still figuring out, hey, what is this, what is this uh, information? What's the importance of protecting it? How do we go about doing that? Exactly. So you got in on the front end. Let's talk about that word of privacy. You know, it means so many things to know so many different people, and it has a, a gut-level meaning. Why, why is that? Yeah, that's a great question, Mari. I, I, think, I think it has that sort of gut-level punch that you talk about because it, it cuts so closely uh, in many ways to who we think we are. Uh, there's, a pri- there's an identity element to privacy. In other words, this is me, the sum total of my, uh, not only my personal information in terms of where I live and what I make and where I keep my money and buy my shoes, but, but what I think and who I spend time with and what I read and um, and, and where and I am, <laughs> where, I, where I am at any given moment. Ter- very good point. Yeah, there's and so, so many I think aspects. That's, yeah, isn't that part of it? And, and, and two, I think there's a there's a, a sort of a, um, a, a a fact that privacy touches on other important values and characteristics. Um, so I came from a great big family, and so the notion of privacy in a big family is is um, there, there really is little and none. Uh, but, but, with, but within the family unit, there were some things that were simply understood that they would remain there. Whether one of the um, family had a certain problem or weakness or challenge, that was a family matter. And I think that privacy about that touched on loyalty and identity and so many other deep values. And I think that privacy sort of gets wrapped up in, in that way in, in, in other values. So how do we define privacy? There's so many things that we think about, whether it was, you know, about the right to be left alone that, that Chief Justice Brandeis talked about in the late 1800s. How do you define privacy? I, to me, privacy has layers. It has it has core core elements, as you say, as we go to the Supreme Court in reading some privacy rights into our U.S. Constitution um, that that have to do with who we are as people and uh, and, and our home, 
So, for example, we are, we have a right to uh, be free of unreasonable search and seizure. Right. Uh, how about my car? Certainly. Um, how about my trunk? Uh, how about my school locker? How about my home computer? And I think these these layers of privacy that have enjoyed constitutional protection are. Uh, are, are well understood in the law, but constantly challenged and subject to re- renewal and and, um, and revision in light of changes in the way we are as human beings and the way society is. And, and technology, so we, you know, when you think about, what, you know, that case where um, if somebody drives by and then and they can see with infrared that you're growing marijuana in your house, it, you know, I mean, how is that with the new technology? Is, is that really a privacy right? You know, that gets back to that case. And we think about that now that things can be, um, our bodies can be invaded uh, just by maybe a machine that looks at us really quickly when you're going through the airport or what can be seen in our home or in our car. Those are, the technology is changing things, and, and we have to look at things in a different way, I guess. I think it's a terrific point. I mean, built into the legal notion of privacy, which, which I think is, is, is probably different from uh, the sort of popular notion of privacy, but they're, they're, they're deeply related, and I think your point is right on target. After all, the, le- the constitutional principle of privacy is not a fixed definition. It depends on the expectation, the reasonable expectation of the people for privacy. And so I think that that expectation itself builds a dynamic element into the constitutional principle of privacy. You know, it's also interesting when you think about Facebook and these young people who are a lot younger than me and how they think about privacy differently. You know, on Facebook, they have everything out there for all of their, quote, friends to see, right? And and yet, if if the um, if there's some kind of advertising, or if they can, if someone can come in and see what they're thinking about who they want to date, then that's they believe that's an invasion of privacy. So, you know, it's it's interesting that even in generations, it changes what our expectation of privacy is. I think that's a terrific point across time, uh, across um, cultures. Right, so yeah. you you you're a very well traveled person. I think uh, you probably have had the same experience I've had, where in certain cultures, uh, if you have a business relationship with a person, it is considered unfriendly to ask uh, questions about family life, history of the family, where are you from, what are your interests. Whereas in other cultures, if you don't ask those questions, you're being unfriendly. Right. So this notion of, of, of what's private, what's appropriate, what's in the proper sphere of communication, I think it differs across age, across, um, across uh, cultures, and uh, I think to context. Right. You know, when you think about it, one of the examples I often bring up in a, in a uh, discussion is uh, blood type. So, of course, if I have uh, a blood uh, a disease or characteristic of some type, that uh, that's a very private matter. I think everyone would nod their head and say, sure, uh, that person's blood disease or blood uh, illness or is probably a private matter. But if I'm in an accident and on the side of the road 
and uh, the EMS are coming uh, up with the sirens blazing. I want everyone in town to know what that blood type is right now if it will help me to get to the hospital in one piece and come through this accident. Right, right. For that purpose. For that purpose. Good point. And for Mm -hmm. a particular purpose. Mm -hmm. Highly contextual. Right. When we talk about the, the, the right to have some control over our personal information so that in that example that you just gave, you want to keep it private for certain things, but for other things to save your life, you don't want to keep it private. So it's, again, who has the right to control that information is a huge issue in privacy now, too. I think it's a terrific point. I mean, taking it out of... Um out of the, a more sort of structural context, but back into the personal context. When we meet a new person, we might begin with very general issues. Thank goodness for, you know, the weather and professional sports, because we can explore those issues and sort of sound the person out, can't we? And before we get into any issues of family or background, and before long, if we begin to trust this person, we might find ourselves divulging some very personal information about fear, hopes and fears or family problems or uh, issues. And I think, Mari, it goes to your point, in, at least to some measure, about control. Before I give this person my personal information and the control and power that might come with giving that over, I need to understand what purpose, what use, what t- sort of uh, uh, trustworthiness, Uh, I I can expect from that person. Right. Someone who's sophisticated like you are. But then when we think about our kids, and I know you have young kids, and my kids are are older, but still we worry about them because when you talk about trust, they have a tendency to trust much more than I might have, Mm -hmm. whether they're on MySpace or whatever. And they might be willing to give that information, which then could be really very dangerous. And yeah, I think that's great. I think that's a terrific point. I mean, those of us who uh, have those uh, the joys and uh, fears of being responsible for other people, we understand that an element of privacy is fear. Yes, and and it's and it's good fear. Right. Uh, it's the kind of fear that you should have to protect yourself, and it's judgment. Uh, it's fear of whether it's identity theft or some of these terrible. Um, uh, folks who uh, try to uh, track people and harass them and take advantage of the kids, I think it's a terribly good point that privacy is in part n- uh, not an issue of sort of core human dignity, but simple protection right. against all of these um, uh, 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 horrors and, 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 and nightmares that are actually happening out there. Right, the invasions. Yeah. You know, I remember you had said that you had lived in France, and I know you, you speak French, right? Mm-hmm. So what when you lived there, did you notice a, a different culture? We just recently had a, a, one of our guests was um, a, a Frenchman who told us about the difference that he saw between opt-in and opt-out with the European Union. We talked a little bit about that, but what about you as an American going over and living in France? Did you feel a different cultural aspect of privacy and, and those issues? I think it's a great question, yes. The short answer is I felt uh, as I lived in France and uh, lived in Luxembourg later, a very cultural, uh, a very different cultural norm on privacy. The assumption in Europe is that 
the uh, the state is to be feared. Mm-hmm. Uh, not uh, notwithstanding the very centralist traditions in many of the European political systems, the the state having personal information is is a is a great uh, fear for the uh, European, and so there are a lot of protections built in for Europeans as against the state having their information. Uh, at, whereas in the United States, you know, we have our we 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 have a, a, a central government which has a ton of information on us and. Of course, we see in times of um, general fear, uh, real justified or not, we tend to yield even more of that as with uh, current issues that, that you mentioned, even at uh, airports and uh, body scans and body searches and so on. But yes, I think the Europeans, too, uh, taking it again to a personal level, I think that there's a sort of standoffishness as to uh, a person's personal life until one is welcomed into the circle, whether it's the family or the community or neighborhood circle, at which time one is, uh, you know, uh, accepted and information and opinion uh, are freely exchanged. Whereas I think in the U.S., Mari, we do tend to be more open with people and share a great deal of personal information with rather casual acquaintances um, without without worrying too much about it. At least that's been the way uh, uh, to date. Right, right. Well, when we talk about state and federal laws in our country, how well is our privacy protected? Yeah, yeah, that's a great question. Uh, You know, I think we, you know, in the U.S., we've adopted a rather sectoral approach. So let's put aside for a moment those types of privacy that are core to the Constitution that we talked about the privacy of the home, the privacy of the body, the privacy of a person's conscience and opinions. Um, and let's talk a little bit about personal information privacy. The U.S. until very recently hadn't thought very deeply uh, about those issues um, until some of the uh, breaches came up and some of the hazards and some of the losses. And so we've adopted, our, as you know, our sectoral approach, financial services, health care, and and moving across to communications, privacy, and so on. It's spotty. Right. Uh, The question is, is it enough? And and I think if the the answer is to be graded on the basis of how well we're protecting ourselves from uh, identity theft, I think we have work to do. Right. Um, And I think we're also learning the costs and consequences of overprotecting data in a sort of sectoral approach. Uh, I think if you talk to folks, Mari, and I know you do, about HIPAA, for example, there's no question folks have a real uh, strong gut-level acceptance of what HIPAA's trying to do. And and let's just, for those people who don't know, we're talking about health information privacy right now, the federal act that, that is supposed to, when you get those privacy notices at your doctor or dentist's office, that is, you get those because it's a disclosure about how they can share your information. I just want to bring that up because we talk about it all the time, but a lot of the people may not be real familiar as they are driving by about what HIPAA really means. Good. It's a good point, Mari. And I think before that federal law was passed, frankly, uh, doctors and pharmacists and hospitals may have been lax with regard to how, how they shared our personal information and with whom 
and how they safeguarded it and protected it against, you know, casual loss. Uh, and so I think that it's that our our personal health information is safer now than it was. But I think folks will also say it's a little frustrating too. Uh, not just continuing to sign this waiver and that waiver everywhere they go at the doctor's office and the pharmacist, but sometimes getting information about one's relatives or or um, close friends if you drive a neighbor to the doctor and so right. on, mm-hmm. and elderly folks. So I think we're having some sort of growing pains with our with our uh, state and federal scheme with privacy, but I think we're on the way. I think you know, as way. opposed to like in when you think of Canada or you think of many other countries in the European Union, they all of these economically advanced countries have privacy commissions that look over these issues, kind of like a, you know the the whole gestalt, so to speak, as opposed to what you were talking about is that we've got these fragmented laws, whether it's you know the health information is with HIPAA or the financial is with the Gramm-Leach-Bliley. We've got all this potpourri of privacy laws. What do you think about that with relationship to uh, the European Union with the privacy commissions? I think it's a great question. To me, I think it's more a reflection of the difference in our political cultures. The Europeans tend to be more centralized and sort of statist, and they can accept that that central role in their government. I think Americans are more problem solvers, and so we noticed some uh, dangers and hazards to the uh, communication and transportation of our financial data. So we adopted the Gramm-Leach-Bliley Act, and it's done a pretty good job, I think, at improving the financial security. Not that there don't continue to be challenges. Same with the health care that we talked about. The state laws, I guess there are 37 or 38 states now which have privacy data breach laws, as you know. Right. So that if a company or a hospital or a university does expose our personal information, those states spell out some pretty specific requirements for what that company, hospital, or university has to do to inform us of what happened, what, what parts of our information were spilled, to whom, for how long, and what we can do to try to protect ourselves. So I think, as an American, I'm more of a problem solver, too, I think, and I, I'm okay with our sort of piecemeal approach. Okay. Tell me about when you worked at Ford Motor Company and you had a lot of smart cars. <laughs> mm-hmm. What were some of the issues that people might not have thought about that you had to be concerned about with Ford Motor Cars? Oh, that's a great question. You, you hit on it earlier, Amari, when we talked about what we, what we consider private, and one of them is where we are. Uh, and so, obviously, vehicles being a central part of mobility in our culture, uh, the where we are was a very important concept to us internally as an issue that our customers cared an awful lot about, uh, even if they weren't consciously caring about it. So we tried to sort of throw our headlights down the road a little bit, so mm-hmm. to speak, and say, let's, let's take a couple steps ahead in the technology as to what we might be able to do in the future. And then let's ask what our, what our customers might be worried about with regard to uh, their data privacy. And some of the issues were, we weren't so sure that people wanted a record of where they were traveling at any given time. Right. Uh, we know that folks could find it terribly useful 
to have their information known in case of emergency or if they're lost. But we weren't so sure that that sort of permanent record of that was very interesting to folks. Right, or to be tracked every single place you go unless you really wanted to. Again, that's that right to control your information. In other words, I don't want people to know everywhere I'm going shopping, but but if, God forbid, I have a flat tire and it's snowing, you know, in the middle of Michigan and, I, you know, I want to get help, it would be nice for somebody to be able to find me. Yeah, terrific. That's yeah. a great so example. So it gets back to that whole thing about the right to control. So how did you guys grapple with that? Well, we adopted early on a very permissions-based approach, which said, as we develop this technology, we're going to make sure that people do have a sense of control over what information is available to others. And there are costs with adopting that kind of approach because it builds in a complexity and uh, a a sort of um, additional challenges in the development and rollout. But I remember specifically, for example, many third parties came to us with really fascinating ideas based on how could we sort of merge and blur the lines between people's mobility and their um, convenience and lifestyle. So, for example, if people were known according to certain repositories of consumer behavior to uh, shop at certain stores or to dine at certain restaurants, then we were propo- we had several folks propose to us we could beam to that car, <laughs> right. to that owner, uh, you're now, you know, 400 yards away on your left from <laughs> restaurant X or, uh, you know, Mall Y, which contains the following three restaurants. And if you come in within the next 45 minutes, we'll give you a certain discount and so on and so on. You know, fascinating ideas. And I can remember the attitude internally was, love to hear more about it, but we're going to make certain that our customers want this kind of push before we bring it to them. Right, right. I know I have that on my GPS, that if I look up something, it'll show me in little stars where there's restaurants or gas stations, you know, if I have mm-hmm. my, my navigator on. Of course, I want to drive, you know, sometimes she tells me the wrong way to go. I want to kill her. But, right. <laughs> but I mean, but you're right. There's convenience. And then, you know, I think you guys have OnStar, too. Didn't Ford have OnStar so that that would be something that would actually be talking to you live? Right. Now, we never adopted the OnStar, which is a GM product, okay. but we have similar. had similar uh, similar uh, applications. Mm-hmm. Yep. And, and, that, and, and then you have a real person that can watch you, right? Correct. <laughs> and that can be, you know, again, situationally, I might want every possible person to help me out of a jam, but I'm not sure I want somebody following me and knowing so much about me. Right. Right. And, and somebody who maybe you don't know who it is that's watching you. And what if it was somebody who who decided that they liked you or your car and they watched you and you really didn't want to be watched and maybe they started stalking you? Right. There's Of course, there's that possibility, too. And even if it doesn't come to the um, uh, possibility of stalking, which I'd have to sit and think whether that uh, from A to B to C was a possibility ever with our product. I don't think so. But I do have this notion of stalking in um, in quotes, and 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 let me drop or it. Or feel on. like and stalking. It, yeah, it, it could feel like it. Yeah. So, for example, some of these retailers online are terribly intelligent, and so I might search without naming a retailer in particular, 
and buy my books online. Right. And uh, and uh, I think I have a fairly eccentric taste with a lot of different um, types of books, whether they're kids' books or psychology or fiction or whatever I'm reading at one moment or another. And I think um, it's a great convenience to me to be able to search this vast library of um, and catalog of materials and buy them. But then, it, then, then, then they get very smart and they start proposing to me right. uh, books that I might enjoy. Others with your profile have bought the following, and to me, I certainly don't compare it by any means with the the, the real physical and emotional fears that that true stalking can cause. But it, but it does bug me a bit. I confess. Um, that, of course, that they, of that course they know they so re- much about me. You know? Right, right, right. But of course, they may recommend a book that you go, wow, that's great. <laughs> Which know? is a good point, and yeah. they have. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Well, let's, let's kind of switch gears and talk about, you know, in litigation, since that has been, you know, really a, a great deal of, of your life. I know you speak about the risks to people's privacy that arise in the litigation process. Let's talk about those risks right now. Right. So let's talk about a litigator and litigation. Litigators are your courtroom lawyers, and litigators are warriors. We, 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 we have a case-by-case approach to life, and we want to win. And so in some ways, if it isn't helping me to win my case, uh, it's expendable. I'm on a high, high energy, high macho, and I use that word to apply to all, all lawyers in the courtroom setting, uh, uh, a battle to marshal my facts to, uh, to, to, to meet, be superior to, to those of my opposition. Now, in the meantime, there might be loads of personal information either in the uh, possession of my opponent or myself or even a third party that become relevant in the case. Right. Uh, and I will tell you that the n- amount of information about people, not only their contact information, but whether it's financial, uh, health, uh, sort of commercial uh, consumer information, becomes fodder for one side or the other to, to marshal arguments or exert leverage on the other side. And because it's in the litigation sort of winner-take-all context, it doesn't necessarily get the attention that it deserves in terms of basic protections, permissions, use limitations, access restrictions. And, um, and so there are those of us out there in the litigation field who are concerned about this and working to improve this, but it's, uh, it's an uphill battle in the litigation area. You know, and it's scary when you think about when you get information, and if you put that information, let's say you attach certain documents to filings, they become public record, which means that if they're not sealed or if no one has gotten a protective order, those documents are out there for anyone to see. And those documents could be something like a a contract that you've signed that maybe has sensitive information on it. It could maybe be loan documents that that have your social security number. If it's a business, it could be trade secrets, right? It's a terrific point. And so uh, over the past, you know, dozen years or so, courts across the country, good uh, people of goodwill, have said, 
quite apart from the privacy conversation, in fulfilling their duties to make court records public and available and accessible, have said, hey, this is easy. I'm going to solve some storage problems that we've had around this courthouse for years, and I'm going to you know, make the, the court process more transparent than it's ever been. And in a democracy, those are all good things. We have a, a long tradition in the common law to make the trial of public matters public. So you can hear these conversations going on all over the country, and uh, district court by district court, circuit by circuit, uh, the light going on saying we are now electronic, and all our data is online, and as the technology improved, it became more and more accessible and more searchable. And exactly what you said, Mari, it became uh, the norm in several localities. Uh, where people's bankruptcies and commercial issues, divorces, custody issues, trusts and estates, all the most intimate affairs of life became sort of at a click, uh, available, uh, sliceable, diceable, etc. Nothing new really under the law, because it was always, in quotes, public, it's just that most folks never got there because you had to go to the basement of the courthouse and know what you were looking for and act like microfiche. you had a reason. Right, right. right. Sort of work your way through the clerks and the bureaucrats and so on. Uh, and whatever you got, you scratched it out on a notebook or you might take a, a fancy microfiche picture, but it certainly wasn't sliceable and diceable. So and, Yeah, and now we're point. seeing that some courts across the country, and California has really been a leader in this, is forcing certain information like social security numbers to be redacted, even right. on public records, you know, for example, right. the birth certificate or the death certificate. On my birth certificate are both of my parents' social security numbers. But now in California, for example, you can't get my birth certificate with my parents' social security numbers, it's going, it's going to be redacted unless, unless right. you're a family member. Yeah. Right. And, and so, again, the American way, we have a value that says transparent uh, judicial processes, and that gets a little bit swung too far on the pendulum. And then folks say, hey, uh, the interests of a transparent judiciary are not... Um, uh, what's happening here, the in, pri people's private interests and commercial interests and curiosity interests are being served. So let's start redacting some of it. Let's start requiring some of it to be filed under seal, as we say in the law. And, and so I think the pendulum is swinging back, and I think we're getting toward a common sense approach uh, in that area. But that's in, with regard to filings. And as you know, Mari, 90%, probably more, of material that parties churn up when they're fighting one another in litigation never gets filed. It remains sort of exchanged in the course of discovery between the parties, but doesn't right. end up in a brief or in a filing. A, a fear I have, and something I've seen years in my years and years of practice, is that parties don't pay attention to securing that information very right. well. Right, right. And, uh, and, and for the... Uh, uh, for the effort that it takes to get a good protective order in the, in, with the court in that case, you often see parties not too worried about that and not expending time and money and energy doing it. So that, that does remain an area where I'm still hoping to the pendulum will move toward a more common-sense answer. You know, even with attorneys exchanging information via email with each other, sometimes they attach very sensitive data without even passwords 
no encryption. And so as much as we're taught as attorneys, attorney-client privilege and attorney-client confidentiality, that so many attorneys that I see don't take the issue of protecting that sensitive information when they're communicating with their client via email. It's a, it's a good point. You know, we attorneys have trained ourselves not to talk in elevators about our client's business, not to talk on a public phone, etc. But, you know, attorneys, like others, there are early adopters and there are folks who still don't do email. And exactly. so there's that, there's that wide range of sophistication as to, you know, the risks of any type of new communication. We're speaking with Tim Devine, who is an attorney. He's a privacy expert. He's former managing general counsel for Ford Motor Company. And he is now um, a partner with the firm of Honigman, Miller, Schwartz, and Cohn in Michigan. And so he is joining us all the way from the Midwest, and we're really thrilled to have him. Let's, uh, let's skip gears, uh, change gear, gears again, and talk about what you do when you represent businesses and organizations um, with regard to handling their information. What do you tell them about their employee information? Right, it's a great question. You know, the, the, uh, my, my basic approach comes from my years in-house that there is a value proposition here, and it's trust. How we treat our employees with regard to how we safeguard their information is an element of how they perceive uh, the mutual loyalties as between employer and employee. Uh, no, nobody wants to feel like they come to work every day and they can't trust the employer to protect their personal information. And, you know, I mean, now a lot of companies are self-insured, so you've got this crossover where they can find out information about your health as well. And right, and I think the law is moving carefully. There's some traditional lines that were always pretty well upheld between workers' comp, for example, and other employment matters and the type of um, private information and health information that rested on one side of that wall and the other. But I think more recently people are waking up to the fact that there's some certain kinds of health information that are absolutely none of the business of the employer and uh, in making hiring, firing, promotion decisions. And uh, many folks would understand that at a gut level as well as to the possibility of it appearing that the employer took into account a person's health, in, a person's uh, health information in making one of those important employment decisions. Right. So it may be more a matter of dressing up on discipline more than changing the fundamental uh, values in the entity, so that files are better segregated, access controls are better uh, marked and better recorded. That these things are built into the internal controls and auditing in a way that makes it clear that we're considering the right factors when we're talking about hiring, firing, promotion, and we're not basing it on any uh, information to which we shouldn't really have any access. Tim, when you're advising businesses, and we have right now, you know, we're on at night, 5 to 6 p.m., and there are people driving by who are business owners, and some of them are large business owners and some of them are small business owners. What about what they should worry about that their employees are doing? What kind of um, recommendations and suggestions do you have with regard to all this technology, whether it's iPods or email? What are you telling employers to watch out for 
with their employees? Yeah, it's a great question. I was recently involved in a matter where an employee uh, for a, uh, a, a Tier 2 a manufacturer, so in, in the Midwest when we talk about Tier 2, we talk about two steps away from the actual product assembler. Uh, so making widgets uh, in the industry had said, we're not, we're not very worried about data loss and data security. And their IT folks were, their information technology people were trying to get budget for one project or another for data security and not making much headway internally until it was discovered that a single employee had uh, shipped out of the enterprise uh, uh, over 4,000 pieces of significant uh, intellectual property. Uh-oh. parts drawings uh. to to china and uh and so the the business's intellectual property was compromised in a very fundamental way and now faces stiff competition from uh overseas manufacturers mm. and i think the answer for for employers is it doesn't matter what business you're in if you have valuable information whether it's uh product information like that example or whether it's customer information financial information employee information there's very there's a whole series of best practices out there that are partially technolo- uh, technological partially personal partially discipline that that are simply part of a risk management package we're we're sort of past the learning phase on that <clears throat> and and the, but the other thing i would say too is don't be shy uh you know, this is something, Mari, you and I have talked as parents about uh, privacy in, in, in the family structure. To me, um, in our house, we always said there's nothing terribly private in a child's life. We're trying to get this child through adolescence and into adulthood perfectly respecting their growing, but I was never too concerned about the privacy of a diary. And I'm old-fashioned in that way. Uh, it, the same the same applies in the in the uh, uh, in the employment context. If an employer says, "Well, you know, we don't feel that it's right to get into the employee's inbox," um, my answer is, "You might be wrong not to get into it. Uh, you have very specific issues in terms of risk management into who's sending what to whom. Uh, you have issues of uh, potential not only intellectual property loss." But hostile environment issues, right. sexual people harassment, are sending around sure. sexual harassment. You have potential leaks of confidential information, defamation. Uh, you have potential antitrust issues as as employees are sending information from one colleague to another in another business in the industry. So you know these days, the, the again back to expectation of privacy. If I were a business owner, I would eliminate immediately any expectation of privacy that an employee has in communications on my time and on my computers. Right. It's very simple to do that. And again, in terms of But you have to be transparent. You have to put it in the employee policy handbook and say, you know, you cannot have an expectation of privacy that we will have the right. These are our computers. We have the right to look at them at any time. We suggest you not use them at all for any personal information. Just let Perfect. them know up front, right? Yes, I think I would do exactly that. And I would uh, say that that would actually probably enhance trust between the employer and the employee. 
what do you look at? What are the rules? What are the expectations? And if you can spell them out clearly and give yourself as the employer as much room as you are, are lawfully entitled to, I think you probably enhance trust at the end of the day because people say, fair enough, I understand the rules. I understand what the limits are and what my rights and responsibilities are, and I, I can live with that. But what what about this, Tim? What about all these other uh, technolog- technological advances, like somebody coming in with an iPod, yeah. you know, or somebody coming in with these uh, USB, the little tiny uh, devices that they can get, you know, you know, I don't know how many megabytes of stuff off of your information. What about that? That's that's theirs. I mean, that's that's they come in with their own pieces of equipment, whether it's their, you know, uh, you know, little laptops or, or whatever, all this electronic stuff that they can capture information. How do you deal with that? Yeah, it's a huge challenge. You know, uh, a lot of times we have to look back to what, what, what made sense before all of this. And we had, some, we had some rules. We had some basic concepts. For example, in the design studios around Detroit, uh, you don't bring a camera in the building, and that goes back, uh, you know, and as long as uh, cameras were around. Uh, and so, as people come into the computer age and the high technology, there are some rules around that, and and certain vulnerabilities. So you uh, monitor who brings what into the building, and what they're using them for. And I've had clients who have uh, essentially removed disks from the hard drives and, uh, that are provided to computers so that you cannot download from, from uh, onto a disk. Well, Mar, you and I know that you're never going to win that race with technology. Right. Uh, people will get their jobs done. And so I guess the answer to me is consistency, transparency, uh, all the best bells and whistles in terms of data security that you can secure through the uh, through our uh, defensive intellectual uh, uh, property and uh, information technology folks. But, but, you know, the other thing is it's a balance, Mari. Uh, I've had clients come to me and say, okay, I think I heard you. I think I get you, Tim. So we should destroy all emails after 30 days. We shouldn't let people use their home computers. Uh, we shouldn't let people do instant messaging. And if we sort of buckle down on the information, we'll get our arms around this. And my answer is uh, not if you get in the way of people getting their work done yeah. because they'll find a way around you. Right. And then you have, then you have information chaos uh, rather than uh, a sort of a controlled uh, confusion. But I think the issue of retaining things longer than you need it when you get to that issue of email, I know yes. that that, yep. that can be a real mess when you're talking about e-discovery, right? You bet. There, that's, where the e, that's where the litigator and the data privacy person meet. It's data minimization. Right. Uh, if you remember some of these awful uh, customer information breaches over the last year or so came out of retailers keeping person's uh, credit card information longer than they needed it. And yeah, it was sure, just think of TJ Maxx, right, right. Right, right. So it was like that proverbial apple pie sitting on the windowsill. It was just too tasty for the fox to avoid. And, and that's what that personal information was in the TJ Maxx area. Same goes for an organization. 
if you don't need the information, the data for business purposes, and if you've made yourself comfortable that you don't need it for regulatory or legal purposes, and, and I can't tell you how busy we are these days advising clients on that point, then get rid of it. Exactly. Because if you, if you get rid of it, no one can steal it, and you don't need to search it and process it and spend time and money on it, giving it to the other side when the litigation or the subpoena strikes. So that's a great point, Mari, where businesses can save money, reduce exposure to people's personal information being stolen, and also reduce the overall litigation uh, cost. You know, I think it's almost like my garage. I think, you know, the bigger garage that you have, the more you store. (laughs) And I think nowadays we've got the ability to store so much information that people just store it. You know, point. yeah, they just don't sit down and get rid of the clutter. And I know what that's like. I mean, I, I found myself this week getting rid of a bunch of clutter, and I know I have to do it again. But it is it is very tough. Do businesses want to spend the time going through everything and deciding what can we throw away and what can't we throw away? What, what can we delete? What can't we delete? I think that's a real problem now for, for a lot of companies. You're right on. I think you're probably experiencing it in the same way with your business contacts and clients. To me, it's very cultural. It depends on the organization. But the message is clear. Economy and risk management require you to draft and implement a sensible, practical, business-savvy, legal records retention policy. And then live with it. And and also it goes to on the front end, now that people are starting to realize that this could be a big risk for them, what are they collecting and what Great. do they need to collect even before you have to think down the line of, of deleting it and throwing it away or, or, you know, destroying it. Don't even collect it unless you need it. I think it's a terrific point. Uh, minimize it on the way in. Uh, keep the access control tight while you have it, and then delete it as soon as you can get it, and you'll save yourself a ton of money. We, we, we've we uh, counseled clients on Jeans Day. So we have a speech from the CEO or the CFO that says, hey, uh, this is a reminder of our records retention policy and all the good business purposes it serves to keep data fresh and then to get rid of the stale stuff. And a week from Friday is Jeans Day where everybody will delete stuff they don't need, they'll shred stuff that's uh, no longer active data and can cause expense and confusion and data integrity issues, and, uh, and we'll all sign something at the end of the day that says uh, we're, good for, we're good for this year again. You know, that's a great idea because unless people are told assigned a certain day to do it, they get so overwhelmed with all their other work that they always put that in the back burner. Yeah, it's so a back burner it, issue. Yeah, mm-hmm. so it's a great idea to say, okay, this is what we're going to do. It's like clean out the closet day. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and then, no, I, I love that idea. That's and we a- do the same thing, Mari, with our clients. So you know how the kids always come home from school now and tell us, hey, the, the daylight savings time changed, time to check our batteries on our fire, uh, our, on our smoke detectors. Yeah, right. So we... Um, we do the same thing. We, we provide a checkup to the client in terms of the legal and regulatory data requirements at their annual genes day. And so it's a nice refresher all the way around. 
Well, so when they don't do that and there's a breach, now let's get to that one because we, right. we know there have been myriad breaches, many of which have been public because th- that was required of them. But this, you know, I even get smaller breaches like doctor's offices that call sure. me, but you don't hear about that in the newspaper. So let's say you get a call, Tim. What are you, what are you going to tell people? What, what are the things that, that the business people who are driving by and the UC system here, what should they do when they find out that there has been some kind of security breach of sensitive data in their databases? Right. So first of all, don't panic. <laughs> uh, it's happened before. It, it's, uh, it's a part of life where we now have so much information about our customers or our employees or, 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 or uh, other business contacts that there are oops moments, and they just happen. Uh, um, even after everyone adopts every possible best practice and good training, they just happen. And there are bad guys, and they've become very sophisticated. You know, the old uh, hacking world where it was about... Um, proving that you could outsmart the defensive uh, intele- uh, information technology folks, that's all over. Now it's very stealth attacks, and it's designed not to be discovered that you were smart enough to penetrate the uh, electronic defenses. They come in and they steal a certain amount of data below the radar screen, and they just keep withdrawing, withdrawing that data. So first, don't panic. It's happened to others. There are experts in uh, the legal area. There are experts in the communications area who can walk you through what happened, whose data was exposed, what type of data was exposed. And uh, very likely you're in one of those states or you have data of folks in one of the states where you're going to be required to reach out and make a contact with your data subjects. And um, you're going to be transparent. And at the end of the day, uh, my advice is usually... Be transparent. Remember Tylenol, when they had an issue of some tampering many, many years ago, they came right on out and they talked about it and they withdrew all their product from the shelves right away. And afterward, their customer data, their customer trust went up. Right. Their customer, their brand equity rose. This doesn't mean that we immediately on the, on the hint of a data breach, we run out and we ring bells and hold press conferences. But it does say at the end of the day that people expect to be treated with care and respect. Oops is okay, but keeping it under, under wraps or trying to soft soap it with a lot of vague language and legalese, these are, these are traps, um, traps under the law and traps in public uh, relations. Right. Right. Lloyd says we don't have much time, so let's kind of go with your vision here. He says we have two minutes here. What do you see 10 or 20 years down the road? What do you see out there as the legal landscape regarding our personal information? How is it going to be? I think the law will continue in, in the U.S. to respect this sort of dynamic notion you and I talked about at the top of the call, and that is expectation of privacy. I think we will continue to have a very dynamic standard of what people expect in terms of privacy. Certain core issues will remain. My home, inside my home, uh, inside my thoughts and my conscience, inside my family, inside my body. But I think 
so many details in technology and the goods that are offered by technology in terms of convenience and safety and um, and uh, you know uh, speed and efficiency will probably lead people to yield a lot of information that to date folks would have thought was their own personal and private information. And I think, too, Mari, at the end of the day, uh, there, there's some terribly thoughtful work going on out there in what privacy is and whether it's a basic right or whether it's a luxury. My, my answer is the law will respect the fact that it's probably both. Right. You know, in, in terms of uh, uh, the, data, the day-to-day pr- things we call privacy, if you look to other countries that maybe don't have the, the wealth that we have, that's not a given. That's not part of what folks fight for and die for. But in, in, the heart, in their heart of hearts, people in the worst circumstances have defended the privacy of their inner thoughts and feelings. And I think no matter 10, 15, 20, or 100 years, that's something people will continue to fight for and the law will continue to respect. Yep. For our human rights, our human dignity, and our privacy. And you have been wonderful. Thank you so much, Tim. We really appreciate you joining us. And we'll have you back again to keep us, you know, in line with what's coming up in the future. Terrific. Thanks, Mari. All right. You take care in Michigan there. Bye-bye. Thanks so much. Goodbye. You've been listening to KUCI 88.9 FM in Irvine and KUCI.org on the net. Join us every week at Privacy Privacy Piracy. The opinions and views expressed in this program do not reflect those of KUCI, its management, or the UC Board of Regents. Weekly Signals, every Tuesday morning from 8 to 9 a.m. Join me, Mike Casper, and Nathan Callahan for the best in reality-based radio. That's Weekly Signals. Check out the website at weeklysignals.com.